0: 18. H. Small spiders. If the spiders that feed upon ants deceive them by their mimicry those which are preyed upon by ants would gain an advantage by a similar disguise. I once placed a little ant-like spider of the genus Hercules in a bottle with three ants no larger than itself, which I had caught with it in the sweet net. In a very few minutes the ants had killed and begun to devour the spider. It may be that the resemblance was sufficiently close to deceive them in the open. But failed when spider and ants were confined together in close quarters. The Bath of the Birds by Richard Jeffries. One morning, Sir Bevis went down to the brook. Standing on the brink, he said, "Brook, Brook, what are you singing? You promised to tell me what you were saying." The brook did not answer, but went on singing. Bevis listened a minute, and then he picked a willow leaf and threw it into the bubbles and watched it go whirling round and round in the eddies and back up under the fall where it dived down and presently came up again, and the stream took it and carried it away past the flags, brook, brook, said bev Eyes, stamping his foot, tell me what you are singing, and the brook, having now finished that part of his song, said Bevis, dear, sit down in the shadow of the willow, for it is very hot today, and the reapers are at work, sit down under the willow and I will tell you as much as I can remember, but the reed said you could not remember anything, said bev Eyes. leaning back against the willow, the reed did not tell you the truth, dear, indeed, he does not know all, the fact is, and the reeds are so fond of talking that I scarcely ever answer them now or they would keep on all day long, and I should never hear the sound of my own voice, which I like best, so I do not encourage them, and that is why the reeds think I do not recollect, and what is that you sing about, said bev Eyes impatiently, my darling, said the brook. I do not know myself always what I am singing about, I am so happy I sing, sing, and never think about what it means, it does not matter what you mean as long as you sing, sometimes I sing about the Sunday who loves me dearly, and tries all day to get at me through the leaves and the green flags that hide me, he sparkles on me everywhere he can, and does not like me to be in the shadow, sometimes I sing to the wind, who loves me next most dearly and will come to me everywhere in places where the sun cannot get. He plays with me whenever he can, and strokes me softly and tells me the things he has heard in the woods and on the hills, and sends down the leaves to float along, for he knows I like something to carry, fling me in some leaves, eyes, dear, sometimes I sing to the earth and the grass, they are fond of me, too, and listen the best of all, I sing loudest at night to the stars, for they are so far away they would not otherwise hear me, but what do you say, said the but the brook was too occupied now to heed him and went on, sometimes I sing to the trees, they, too, are fond of me and come as near as they can, they would all come down close to me if they could, they love me like the rest, because I am so happy and never cease my chanting, if I am broken to pieces against a stone, I do not mind in the least, I laugh just the same and even louder, When I come over the hatch, I dash myself to fragments, and sometimes a rainbow comes and stays a little while with me, the trees drink me, and the grass drinks me, the birds come down and drink me, they splash me and are happy, the fishes swim about, and some of them hide in deep corners, round the bend I go, and the osiers say they never had enough of me, the long grass waves and welcomes me, the moorhens float with me, the kinfisher is always with me somewhere and sits on the bow to see his ruddy breast in the water, and you come to, bev-eyes, now and then to listen to me, and it is all because I am so happy, why are you so happy, said bev-eyes, I do not know, said the brook, perhaps it is because all I think of is this minute, I do not know anything about the minute just gone by, and I do not care one bit about the minute that is just coming, all I care about is this minute, this very minute now, fling me in some more leaves, bev-eyes, why do you go about asking questions, dear? Why don't you sing and do nothing else? Oh, but I want to know all about everything, said devise Where did you come from? And where are you going? And why don't you go on and let the ground be dry? Why don't you run on and run all away? Why are you always here? The brook laughed and said, My dear, I do not know where I came from, and I do not care at all where I am going. What does it matter, my love? all I know is I shall come back again, yes, I shall come back again, the brook sang very low and rather sadly now, I shall go into the sea and shall be lost, and even you would not know me, ask your father, love, he has sailed over the sea in ships that come to Southampton, and I was close to him, but he did not know me, but by and by, when I am in the sea, the sun will lift me up, and the clouds will float along look towards the hills, dear every morning and you will see the clouds coming and bringing me with them, and the rain and the dew, and sometimes the thunder and the lightning, will put me down again, and I shall run along here and sing to you, my sweet, if you will come and listen, fling in some little twigs, my dear, and some bits of bark from the tree, that I will, said Bevis, and he picked up a stone and flung it into the water with such a splash that the kingfisher flew away, But the brook only laughed and told him to throw another and to make haste and grow bigger and jump over him. S.S. We shall meet by the drinking place, said the grasshopper, and was just hopping off. When Babise asked him what the birds went down to bathe for, I'm sure I do not know, said the grasshopper, speaking fast. For he was rather in a hurry to be gone, he never could stand still long together. All I can tell you island that on midsummer day every one of the birds has to go down to the brook and walk in and bathe and it has been the law for so many, many years that no one can remember when it began, they like it very much, because they can show off their fine feathers which are just now in full color, and if you like to go with me, you will be sure to enjoy it, so I will, said Bebice, and he followed the grasshopper, who hopped so far at every step that he had to walk fast to keep up with him, they went on in silence a good way except that the grasshopper cried, S.S., to his friends in the grass as he passade, and said good morning also to a mole, who peeped out for a moment. Why don't you hop straight? said Bevice presently. It seems to me that you hop first one side and then the other, and go in such a zigzag fashion it will take us hours to reach the brook. How very stupid you are, said the grasshopper. If you go straight, of course you can only see just what is under your feet, but if you go first this way and then that, then you see everything, you are nearly as silly as the ants, who never see anything beautiful all their lives, be sure you have nothing to do with the ants, eyes. they are a mean, wretched, miserly set, quite contemptible and beneath notice, now, I go everywhere, all round the field, and spend my time searching for lovely things, sometimes I find flowers, and sometimes the butterflies come down into the grass and tell me the news, and I am so fond of the sunshine. I sing to it all day long, tell me, now, is there anything so beautiful as the sunshine and the blue sky, and the green grass, and the velvet and blue and spotted butterflies, and the trees which cast such a pleasant shadow and talk so sweetly, and the brook which is always running, I should like to listen to it for a thousand years, I like you, said Bevis. jump into my hand and I will carry you, he held his hand out flat, And in a second up sprang the grasshopper and alighted on his palm and told him the way to go. And thus they went together merrily. Babies, dear, I do not sing at night, but I always go where I can see a star. I slept under a mushroom last night, and he told me he was pushing up as fast as he could before someone came and picked him to put on a gridiron. I do not lay up any store, because I know I shall die when the summer ends, and what is the use of wealth then? My store and my wealth is the sunshine, dear, and the blue sky, and the green grass, and the delicious brook who never ceases sing, sing, singing all day and night, and all the things are fond of me, the grass and the flowers, and the birds and the animals all of them love me. I think I shall take you home and put you under a glass case on the mantelpiece, said Bevis. Off jumped the grasshopper in a moment, and fell so lightly on the grass it did not hurt him in the least. So it was as far as if Bevis had tumbled down out of the clouds. Bevis tried to catch him, but he jumped so nimbly this way and that, and hopped to and fro, and lay down in the grass, that his green coat could not be seen. Bevis now went down to the brook and stood on the bank, where it was high, near a bush at the side of the drinking place. Ah, dear little Sir Bevis," whispered a reed, bending towards him as the wind blew. Please do not come any nearer, the bank is steep and treacherous and hollow underneath where the water rats run, so do not lean over after the forget-me-nots they are too far for you, sit down where you are, behind that little bush, and I will tell you all about the bathing, the birds come down to bathe every midsummer day, and the goldfinches, and the sparrows, and the blackbirds, and the thrushes, and the swallows, and the wrens, and the robins, and almost every one of them, except two or three, whose great-grandfathers got into disgrace a long while ago. The rooks do not come because they are thieves, and steal the mussels, nor the crows, who are a very bad lot, the swan does not come either, unless the brook is muddy after a storm. The swan is so tired of seeing himself in the water that he quite hates it, and that is the reason he holds his neck so high, that he may not see more of himself than he can help. Soon the birds came, they were all in their very best and brightest feathers and as the sun shone on them and they splashed the water and strutted about, their eyes thought he had never seen anything so beautiful, they did not all bathe, for some of them were specially permitted only to drink instead, but they all came, and all in their newest dresses, so bright was the goldfinch's wing, that the lark, though she did not dare speak, had no doubt she rouged, the sparrow, brushed and neat, so quiet and subdued in his brown velvet, looked quite aristocratic among so much flaunting color, as for the blackbird he had carefully washed himself in the spring before he came to bathe in the brook, and he glanced round with a bold and defiant air, as much as to say, there is not one of you who has so yellow a bill, and so beautiful a black coat as I have, in the bush the bullfinch, who did not care much to mix with the crowd, moved restlessly to and fro, the robin looked all the time at their eyes, so anxious was he for admiration. The wood pigeon, very consequential, affected not to see the dove, whom Babise longed to stroke, but could not, as he had promised the reed to keep still, eyes looked up into the sky, and there was the hawk, almost up among the white clouds, soaring round and round, and watching all that was proceeding, almost before he could look down again a shadow went by, and a cuckoo flew along very low, just over the drinking place, cuckoo, he cried, cuckoo. The goldfinch has the prettiest dress, and off he went. Now the hawk had bribed the cuckoo, who was his cousin, to do this, and the cuckoo was not at all unwilling, for he had an interest himself in keeping the birds divided. So he said that although he had made up his mind to go on his summer tour, leaving his children to be taken care of by the wagtail, he would stop a day or two longer to manage this little business. No sooner had the cuckoo said this, than there was a most terrible uproar and all the birds cried out at once. The blackbird was so disgusted that he flew straight off, chattering all across the field and up the hedge. The bullfinch tossed his head, and asked the goldfinch to come up in the bush and see which was stronger. The greenfinch and the chaffinch shrieked with derision, the woodpigeon turned his back and said, Pooh, and went off with a clatter. The sparrow flew to tell his mates on the house, and you could hear the chatter they made about it right down at the brook. But the wren screamed loudest of all, and said that the goldfinch was a painted imposter, and had not got half so much gold as the yellow hammer, so they were all scattered in a minute, and Bevi stood up and hurried homeward, it is remarkable how many creatures live wild and free, though secret, in the woods, and still sustain themselves in the neighborhood of towns, suspected by hunters only, how retired the otter manages to live here, he grows to be four feet long, as big as a small boy, perhaps without any human being getting a glimpse of him. I formerly saw the raccoon in the woods behind where my house is built, and probably still heard their wintering at night. Commonly I rested an hour or two in the shade at noon, after planting, and ate my lunch, and read a little by a spring which was the source of a swamp and of a brook, oozing from under Brister's Hill, half a mile from my field. The approach to this was through a succession of descending grassy hollows, full of young pitch pines into a larger wood about the swamp there in a very secluded and shaded spot under a spreading white pine there was yet a clean firm sward to sit on i had dug out the spring and made a well of clear gray water where i could dip up a pailful without roiling it and thither i went for this purpose almost every day in midsummer when the pond was warmest thither too the woodcock led her brood to probe the mud for worms flying but a foot above them down the bank while they ran in a troop beneath, but at last, spying me, she would leave her young and circle round and round me, nearer and nearer till within four or five feet, pretending broken wings and legs, to attract my attention, and get off her young, who would already have taken up their march, with faint wiry peep, single file through the swamp, as she directed, or I heard the peep of the young when I could not see the parent bird, there, too, the turtle doves sat over the spring, or fluttered from bough to bough of the soft white pines over my head, or the red squirrel coursing down the nearest bough was particularly familiar and inquisitive. You only need sit still long enough in some attractive spot in the woods that all its inhabitants may exhibit themselves to you by turns. In the fall, the loon Columbus glaciales came as usual to mold and bathe in the pond, making the woods ring with his wild laughter. Before I had risen, that rumor of his arrival, all the milldam sportsmen are on the alert in gigs and on foot, two by two and three by three, with patent rifles and conical balls and spy glasses, they come rustling through the woods like autumn leaves, at least ten men to one loon, some station themselves on the side of the pond, some on that, for the poor bird cannot be omnipresent, if he died here he must come up there, but now the kind October wind rises, rustling the leaves and rippling the surface of the water, so that no loon can be heard or seen though his nose sweep the pond with spyglasses and make the woods resound with their discharges, the waves generously rise and dash angrily, taking sides with all waterfowl, and our sportsmen must be to retreat to town and shop and in finished jobs, but they were too often successful, when I went to get a pail of water early in the morning I frequently saw this stately bird sailing out of my cove within a few rods, if I endeavored to overtake him in a boat, in order to see how he would maneuver, he would die then be completely lost, so that I did not discover him again, sometimes, till the latter part of the day, but I was more than a match for him on the surface, he commonly went off in a rain, as I was paddling along the north shore one very calm October afternoon, for such days especially they set long to the lakes, like the milkweed down, having looked in vain over the pond for a loon, suddenly one, sailing out from the shore toward the middle a few rods in front of me, Set up his wild laugh and betrayed himself. I pursued with a paddle and he dived. But when he came up I was nearer than before. He dived again but I miscalculated the direction he would take. And we were fifty rods apart when he came to the surface this time. For I had helped to widen the interval. And again he laughed long and loud. And with more reason than before. He maneuvered so cunningly that I could not get within half a dozen rods of him. Each time when he came to the surface. Turning his head this way and that. He coolly surveyed the water and the land, and apparently chose his course so that he might come up where there was the widest expanse of water and at the greatest distance from the boat. It was surprising how quickly he made up his mind and put his resolve into execution. He led me at once to the wildest part of the pond, and could not be driven from it. While he was thinking one thing in his brain, I was endeavoring to divine his thought in mine. It was a pretty game, played on the smooth surface of the pond, a man against a loon. Suddenly your adversary's checker disappears beneath the board, and the problem is to place yours nearest to where his will appear again. Sometimes he would come up unexpectedly on the opposite side of me, having apparently passed directly under the boat. So long-winded was he and so unweariable, that when he had swam farthest he would immediately plunge again. Nevertheless, and then no wit could divine where in the deep pond, beneath the smooth surface, he might be speeding his way like a fish for he had time and ability to visit the bottom of the pond in its deepest part. It is said that loons had been caught in the New York lakes 80 feet beneath the surface, with looks set for trout. Though Walden is deeper than that. How surprised must the fishes be to see this ungainly visitor from another sphere speeding his way amid their schools. Yet he appeared to know his course as surely underwater as on the surface, and swam much faster there. Once or twice I saw a ripple where he approached the surface just put his head out to a reconnoiter, and instantly dived again. I found that it was as well for me to rest on my oars and wait his reappearing as to endeavor to calculate where he would rise, for again and again, when I was straining my eyes over the surface one way, I would suddenly be startled by his unearthly laugh behind me. But why, after displaying so much cunning, did he invariably betray himself the moment he came up by that loud laugh? Did not his white breast enough betray him? he was indeed a silly loon, I thought, I could commonly hear the plash of the water when he came up, and so also detected him, but after an hour he seemed as fresh as ever, dived as willingly and swam yet farther than at first, it was surprising to see how serenely he sailed off with an ruffled breast when he came to the surface, doing all the work with his webbed feet beneath, his usual note was the stimoniac laughter, yet somewhat like that of a waterfowl, but occasionally when he had mocked me most successfully and come up a long way off, he uttered a long-drawn and earthly howl, probably more like that of a wolf than any bird, as when a beast puts his muzzle to the ground and deliberately howls. This was his looning, perhaps the wildest sound that is ever heard here, making the woods ring far and wide. I concluded that he laughed in derision of my efforts, confident of his own resources, though the sky was by this time overcast. The pond was so smooth that I could see where he broke the surface when I did not hear him, his white breast, the stillness of the air, and the smoothness of the water were all against him, at length, having come up fifty rods off, he uttered one of those prolonged howls, as if calling on the god of loons to aid him, and immediately there came a wind from the east and rippled the surface, and filled the whole air with misty rain, and I was impressed as if it were the prayer of the loon answered, and his god was angry with me, and so I left him disappearing far away on the tumultuous surface. For hours, in fall days, I watched the ducks cunningly tack and veer and hold the middle of the pond, far from the sportsmen, tricks which they will have less need to practice in Louisiana mines, When compelled to arise they would sometimes circle round and round and over the pond at a considerable height, from which they could easily see to other ponds and the river, like black moats in the sky, and, when I thought they had gone off thither long since, they would settle down by a slanting flight of a quarter of a mile onto a distant part which was left free, but what beside the safety they got by sailing in the middle of Walden I do not know. Unless they love its water for the same reason that I do. The Dartmere Ponies. O are the wanderings of the horse tribe from, through magic glasses. By A.R.A.B.L.A.B. Buckley. I want you to take a journey with me which I took in imagination a few days ago. As I lay on my back on the sunny oar and watched the Dartmere Ponies, It was a calm misty morning one day last week, giving promise of a bright and sunny day, when I started off for a long walk across the moor to visit the famous stone circles, many of which are to be found not far off the track, called Abbot's Way, leading from Buckfest Abbey, on the Dart, to the Abbey of Tavistock, on the Taffy. My mind was full of the olden times as I pictured to myself how, 700 years or more ago, some Benedictine monk from Tavistock Abbey, in his black robe and cowl, paced this narrow path on his way to his Cistercian brethren at Buckfest, meeting some of them on his road as they wandered over the desolate moor in their white robes and black scapularies in search of stray sheep, for the Cistercians were shepherds and wool weavers, while the Benedictines devoted themselves to a learning, and the track of about twenty-five miles from one abbey to the other, which still remains, was worn by the members of the two communities and their dependents the only variety in whose lives consisted probably in these occasional visits one to the other. Yet even these monks belonged to modern times compared to the ancient Britons who raised the stone circles, and buried their dead in the barrows scattered here and there over the moor, and my mind drifted back to the days when, long before that pathway was worn, men clad in the skins of beasts hunted wild animals over the ground on which I was treading, and lived in caves and holes of the ground. I wondered, as I thought of them, whether the cultured monks and the uncivilized Britons delighted as much in the rugged scenery of the moor as I did that morning. For many miles in front of me the moor stretched out wild and treeless, the sun was shining brightly upon the mass of yellow firs and deep red heather, drawing up the moisture from the ground, and causing a kind of watery haze to shimmer over the landscape, while the early mist was rising off the tors or hilltops, in the distance, curling in fanciful wreaths around the rugged and stony summits as it dispersed gradually in the increasing heat of the day, the cattle which were scattered in groups here and there feeding on the dewy grass were enjoying the happiest time of the year, the moor, which in winter affords them scarcely a bare subsistence, is now richly covered with fresh young grass, and the sturdy oxen fed solemnly and deliberately, while the wild dartmere ponies and their colts scampered joyously along, shaking their manes and long flowing tails, and neighing to each other as they went, or clustered together on some verdant spot, where the colts teased and bit each other for fun, as they gambled round their mothers. It was a pleasure there on the open moor, with the lark soaring overhead and the butterflies and bees hovering among the sweet-smelling fir's blossoms. To see horses free and joyous, with no thought of bit or bridle, harness or saddle, whose hooks had never been handled by the shoeing smith, nor their coats touched with the singeing iron. Those little colts, with their thick heads shaggy coats, and flowing tails, will have at least two years more freedom before they know what it is to be driven or beaten, only once a year are they gathered together, claimed by their owners and branded with an initial, and then left again to wonder where they will, true, it is a freedom which sometimes has its drawbacks, for if the winter is severe the only food they can get will be the first tops, off which they scrape the snow with their feet, yet it is very precious in itself, for they can gallop when and where they choose, With head erect, sniffing at the wind and crying to each other for the very joy of life. Now as I strolled across the moor and watched their gambols, thinking how like free wild animals they seemed, my thoughts roamed far away. And I saw in imagination scenes where other untamed animals of the horse tribe are living and fettered all their lives long. First there rose before my mind the level grass-covered pampas of South America, where wild horses share the boundless plains with troops of the Rhea, or American ostrich and wander, each horse with as many mares as he can collect, in companies of hundreds or even thousands in a troop, these horses are now truly wild, and live freely from youth to age, unless they are unfortunate enough to be caught in the more inhabited regions by the lasso of the hunter, in the broad pampas, the home of herds of wild cattle, they dread nothing, there, as they roam with one bold stallion as their leader, even beasts of prey hesitate to approach them, for when they form into a dense mass with the mothers and young in their center, their heel deal blows which even the fierce jaguar does not care to encounter, and they trample their enemy to death in a very short time. Yet these are not the original wild horses we are seeking. They are the descendants of tame animals, brought from Europe by the Spaniards to Buenos Aires in 1535, whose descendants have regained their freedom on the boundless pampas and prairies. As I was picturing them careering over the plains, Another scene presented itself and took their place. Now I no longer saw around me tall pampas grass with the long necks of the reas appearing above it, for I was on the edge of a dreary, scantily covered plain between the Aral Sea and the Balkosh Lake in Tartary. To the south lies a barren sandy desert, to the north the fertile plains of the Kyrgyz steppes, where the tartar feeds his flocks, and herds of antelope gallop over the fresh green pasture, and between these is a kind of no-man's land where low scanty shrubs and stunted grass seem to promise but a poor feeding ground, yet here the small long-legged but powerful tarpans, the wild horses of the treeless plains of Russia and Tartary, were picking their morning meal, sturdy wicked little fellows they are, with their shaggy light brown coats, short wiry manes, erect ears, and fiery watchful eyes, they might well be supposed to be true wild horses, whose ancestors had never been tamed by man, and yet it is more probable that even they escaped in early times from the Tartars, and have held their own ever since. Over the grassy steppes of Russia and on the confines of the plains of Tartary, sometimes they live almost alone, especially on the barren wastes where they have been seen in winter, scraping the snow off the herbages our ponies do on Dartmoor. At other times, as in the south of Russia, where they wander between the Dnieper and the Don, they gather in vast herds and live a free life not fearing even the wolves, which they beat to the ground with their hooves, from one green oasis to another they travel over miles of ground, a thousand horse and none to ride, with flowing tail, and flying mane, wide nostrils never stretched by pain, mouths bloodless to the bit or rain, and feet that iron never shod, and flanks unscattered by spur or rod, a thousand horse, the wild, the free, like waves that follow o'er the sea, myrins mazepan. My as I followed them in their course I fancied I saw troops of yet another animal of the horse-tribe, the Kulan, or equus Hemianus, which is a kind of half-horse. Half-ass page 393. Living on the curvy steppes of Tartary and spreading far beyond the range of the tarpan into Tibet, here at last we have a truly wild animal, never probably brought into subjection by man. The number of names he possesses shows how widely he has spread. The Tartars call him Kulan. The Tibetans, Kiang, While the Mongolians give him the unpronounceable name of Shigate. He will not submit to any of them. But if caught and confined soon breaks away again to his old life. A free and fetterless creature. No one has ever yet settled the question whether he is a horse or an ass. Probably because he represents an animal truly between the two. His head is graceful. His body light. His legs slender and fleet. Yet his ears are long and ass-like. He has narrow hoofs and a tail with a tuft at the end like all the ass tribe, his color is a yellow-brown, and he has a short dark mane and a long dark stripe down his back as a donkey has, though this last character you may also see in many of our Devonshire ponies, living often on the high plateaus, sometimes as much as 1500 feet above the sea. This child of the steppes travels in large companies even as far as the rich meadows of Central Asia, in summer wandering in green pastures and in winter seeking the hunger steps where sturdy plants grow. And when autumn comes the young steeds go off alone to the mountain heights to survey the country around and call wildly for mates, whom, when found, they will keep close to them through all the next year, even though they mingle with thousands of others. Till about ten years ago the hemionus was the only truly wild horse known. But in the winter of 1879-80 the Russian traveler Pzivalshky brought back from Central Asia a much more horse-like animal. Called by the Tartars, Kurdag, and by the Mongols, stature, it is a clumsy, thick-set, whitish-gray creature with strong legs and a large, heavy, reddish-colored head, its legs had a red tint down to the knees, beyond which they are blackish down to the hooves, but the ears are small, and it has the broad hoofs of the true horse, and warts on his hind legs, which no on him,